Okay, I think it's time. Welcome, my name is Susan. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi. Susan. Hi. Susan, shall I shut the door? That would probably be a good idea. Thanks. So I have just discovered I'm the moderator. Hopefully all goes well. We can never fail by beginning with a serenity prayer. As the doors close, we'll start. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we begin, we ask that all cell phones or other electronic equipment be turned off. Even if you think it's off, please check again. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. OA members are reminded that when sharing to speak your recovery in the when sharing to speak to your recovery in the program of Overeaters Anonymous only. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. If there's press in the room, please do not take any unauthorized pictures or identify anyone using their full name. There will be audio recordings of this workshop, which you may purchase outside in the foyer. This workshop will have speakers followed by ask it basket questions. During the workshop, please keep the basket moving. The topic for this session is relapse to recovery, U-turn ahead, and the principle is humility. We will begin with a selection from Welcome Back, page one. We share with you the hope and strength we found when we achieved a level of recovery, relapsed, and were born anew when we recommitted ourselves to the OA program. Some of us found that only the humbling experience of relapse taught us the true nature of our illness. We'll have 15 minute shares. Let's welcome Ella, our first speaker. Thank you. I was told that I had 18 minutes, three minutes to share about me, and 15 minutes to share on the topic. So, um, whatever. Um, my name is Ella. I'm a compulsive overeater. And the quick statistics are that I came to Overeaters Anonymous on June 16, 1982, and January 6th, 1996, I stopped compulsively overeating. So now I know this. some people say, wow, um, well, I guess I'll just sit around for 14 years and um, <laughs> then suddenly something will happen. Um, during that time, oh, I'm maintaining about a 70 or 75 pound weight loss. During that time, I was abstinent for stretches at a time sometimes for two or three years. And then I went back out. And, you know, there's two things it says. U-turn, which to me is a total reversal of direction, that I have to go 180 degrees away from what I've been doing. And then it talks about humility. And I think, for me, humility is honesty. Honestly, honesty about who I am, honesty about 
my problem and my disease. I was at a uh, retreat not so long ago, and somebody said something really uh, helpful to me about the first step, which is I'm not able to, I never have been able to, I never will be able to, and fill that in, control my eating, control somebody around me, control my emotions. So I'm not able to, I never have been able to, I never will be able to. And it talks in step one about accepting the devastating, you know, the consequences of our illness. What are the devastating consequences? And when I used to come in, people would say, well, the good news is you never have to eat again, and the bad news is you never have to eat again. And I think one of the things that I know is that although people talk a lot about this being a spiritual program, for me, the food is not separate from spiritual work. That I can't be turning my will and my life over to God and still turning my food over to me. And that also, that's a demonstration of my surrender. That, you know, this program, you know, because somebody was trying to tell me, well, I tried that program, I just didn't have the willpower, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, but it's not about willpower. It's about surrendering. It's about some deep, some deep knowledge within me that this can't, that kind of eating, that behavior with food can't continue to be a part of my life. And I don't know really, you know, you'll, you'll hear a lot of people say, well, if you just work the steps this way, if you just read this in the big book and answer these questions, if you just get down on your knees every day and say the first three steps, if you just give up grains, we're not supposed to talk about food, but I hope that is a general enough category that it doesn't send anybody into a fit. But if you just, <laughs> if you don't eat grains and if you just eat protein and vegetables, you will be fine. And, you know, I was thinking about that when I came in, it told me that the reasons for my illness were unimportant. What deserved my attention was that there was a method of recovery. And that when I read the doctor's opinion in the big book, it said, I ate because of I had a craving. Well, I'm honestly not sure that I could say, why did you relapse? Why? You know, oh, I was not in fit spiritual condition. Well, really, what does that mean? And, and um, I don't know about you, but that's something I have to aspire to on a daily or hourly basis. And if I think that I have to have my um, stuff completely together in order to stop overeating, you know, I'm going to be dead. Because I remember I would see people who were abstinent when I came in, and I would say, so-and-so is such a jerk, although I didn't say that, but um, so-and-so is such a jerk, and they are not overeating. What about me? And um, so I say that an imperfect person can, we can be of use as imperfect people. The other thing I really wanted to say is that beating myself up over things is not 
a tool of the program. So, because if self-flagellation, self-hatred, and, and recrimination had worked, I would never have come here. But that doesn't mean that I get to say that behavior is okay when it's not. So there's a difference in saying, this is not what I want to be doing. This behavior does not work. This does not represent my authentic self. This is not what's in my best interest. This does not make me feel good after I've done it, even though I imagine before I do it that it will make me feel good. There's a difference in saying, no, this is really not what I want to be doing and beating myself up. So if I'm always saying, well, it's okay, or I, you know, it, I don't have to forgive myself unless I've blamed myself. So it's just like neutral. I overate, I'm in relapse, this sucks, and I will keep on trying. So the one thing I did in all those years when I was still eating was I came to meetings, I shared, I did service if they would let me, and I called a sponsor every day, and I told her exactly what I ate. And exactly what I ate was very rarely what I'd committed, but I told her every day. And I honestly cannot tell you how I could have done this in my life, because I was not a person who liked to do things that I did badly, and I really... Uh, was not the poster child for OA in any way. I mean, people really would leave the room when I got up to speak. And um, so, you know, it was a mess. And I don't know how I kept coming back, except that I heard the truth here. I heard people who had eaten as I ate and who had stopped. And when I read the stories in the big book, I'd say, God, these were hopeless cases. These people were screwed entirely, and something happened. So I just kept coming back, and I just kept telling the truth. And I wish I could say why on January 6, 1996, in some level I was done. Now, I want to say that does not mean I have never had a meal that's too large. That does not mean that I have not had a meal. I have, I've eaten meals that I would not want. You know, I would not want my eating behavior on YouTube for, you know, on the OA site. Um, you know, I've done those things. And, um, you know, I've been to a potluck and taken a second a helping of salad because it's somehow that salad and that's not really part of the one plate that I had. So I'm like you, I hope. You know, I can rationalize and justify. But more and more I like to be aware of that because I think this is a very, very, very tricky uh, addiction that we work with. And it's very easy to rationalize, well, I didn't eat such and such, you know, or you know, I haven't eaten so-and-so for 30 years, which was true of me. I hadn't eaten so-and-so for, like, whatever, you know, 15, 20 years, but I was eating so-and-so in vast amounts. So it's not just about the substance, you know, because there's different trigger foods for different people. It's about eating moderately, and it's about eating in a way that allows me to maintain a healthy weight. And 
That was added to our definition of abstinence. I know that was a problem for people. But I think one of the things about humility is that in this program, I or other people have a tendency to think that any question about food and weight is a judgment or an accusation. And there's an unwillingness to say, you know, like, well, I'm, a, I'm in trouble. Or, you know, someone would call me and I ate, to say I ate some. And I would say, well, some, that's very vague. What do you mean by some? You know, it's like, and, um, and that vagueness and that, you know, it's all because I'm ashamed. If I'm not ashamed, if I'm not adding that to the situation, I can tell the truth. And where else can I tell the truth except here? There's no one else except another compulsive overeater who understands. You know, and if someone says to me, oh, I'm ashamed to tell you, and I said, oh, right, you're ashamed to tell somebody who ate out of the garbage can that you, you know, had an extra something with your lunch? No. Um, and, and I don't know. Um, I honestly wish I could say to everybody, well, here's the answer. I can only say this is what I did, this is what worked for me. And I can only say that I believe that the, a big ingredient in humility is this honesty. And the honesty is just to say, this is what I'm doing. I'm in trouble. Help. Because I've seen people in our program gaining weight and obviously having a hard time. And I say, well, how are you? And they say, fine. And I'm just saying, how can you be, why are you saying fine? Um, that we don't have to have it all together to be here. And it's not a crime. It's not a sin. It's not... Uh, well, I just want to say that we're compulsive overeaters, you know. And as an addict, my tendency is to go toward the, the substance for my addiction. It's to avoid what's uncomfortable and to seek relief from that. And... I think for me, one of the things, and I'll just talk about that and be wrapping up, that really helped me when I came in here, you know, after years of therapy and after years of tweaking and going on every single kind of diet and then going on every single kind of non-diet and doing all kinds of spiritual seeking, I came to understand, reading the doctor's opinion in the big book, that I was an addict. And I really wasn't different from any other addict. It's just that the substance I, I was addicted to was different. And therefore, when I looked at it that way, it's not remarkable that I want to go toward it at a time when I'm upset. It's not remarkable that I don't want to do the things that work. As an addict, I don't want to do them. You know, my first you know, response is, no, I don't really want to. You know, weigh and measure, I don't want to. Call you, I don't want to. Um, Because it's, for whatever reason, it's frightening to me. I don't know. I don't have to know. You know, people will say, well, it's because I don't trust and my father did this and my mother did that. I mean, I don't know. Um, I think that for me, it's just best to not have a lot of explanations about my behavior and just say, this doesn't work. How can I pray for the willingness to do what does work? I mean, you know, it is not rocket science to know what works. I mean, I think most of us know that 
Um, well, I know that you know getting on the internet at 10 o'clock at night does not mean I'm just going to check my email for five minutes. It means that at one o'clock I'll be asking, why am I still here? And so the thing, and, and that's true. I mean, I know that for a fact, but do I get on the internet at 10 o'clock? Do I sit there for five minutes? Do I get up every morning, jump out of bed and say, I can't wait to do these exercises that have been prescribed for me so that I can stand straighter and feel better? No, I now have to, after two or three years of just being miserable about not doing them, I started committing to a fellow, just as I would commit my food, that I'm going to get up and do these. And still, still, it's not my first joyful thought. You know, it's not, and people say, well, if you just make it a habit or if you just make it a commitment, or somebody who's not in program will say, well, it makes me feel better, so why wouldn't I do it? <laughs> This is not a question you have to ask an addict. It makes me feel better. I don't want to do it. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So knowing that, knowing what I have to work with, I have to do things I don't want to do with the hope that I'll be willing to do them or I'll keep doing them and something will change. But, you know, just for the record, you know, I've been here a long time. I've been absent a long time. I have been blessed with not being obese for a long time. And I still do things that are completely not, what, what should I say? they're not in my best interest. You know, I still procrastinate. Um, I still sit around, you know, in my head. I still worry. You know, I get sick enough of it, I call a fellow and, you know, we talk about it and it gets relieved. But my first MO is not Um, to sit there and say, oh God, I know you're going to take care of me and I probably should not be up here speaking to you at all because now at least there's some of you in the room who at least identify with being such a doofus. But, you know, my idea is not, oh God, I know you're going to take care of this. My idea is, oh God, what's going to happen? And I have to worry about this. And finally, after an hour, I call someone and I say, I don't think worry is a tool of the program. And... (laughs) You know, and then they say that, and then, you know, I move on to something else, and the cat's going to get cancer, you know, or whatever. And um, so, you know, I will always be an imperfect human being till the day I die. I will always be putting my foot in it, and we have tools for that. But one of the things I don't have to do is overeat about it. And that I'm very grateful for, because before, all I got to feel rotten about was I overate. It kind of just smeared itself over everything. So I just felt bad all the time about overeating. And um, now I get to feel some other things. Sometimes they're joyful, sometimes they're not. And I think that um, as addicts, well, as an addict, this addict doesn't like reality. You know, the other day somebody said to me, well, that's life. And I said, right, that's exactly my problem. Um, And so I don't know if I've given anybody any hope, but um, I always like to say if this compulsive overeater could stop compulsively overeating, everybody can. And I I think I'm going to 
close with a favorite quote of mine from the big book. It's from the story, He Lived Only to Drink, uh, page, big book pages 450 to 451. And this is a guy who lost everything and is now in a uh, shelter. Then I realized I had to separate my sobriety from everything else that was going on in my life. No matter what happened or didn't happen, I couldn't drink. In fact, none of these things that I was going through had anything to do with my sobriety. The tides of life flow endlessly for better or worse, both good and bad, and I cannot allow my sobriety to become dependent on these ups and downs of living. Sobriety must live a life of its own. So thank you. Thank you, Ella. Uh, please keep the Ask It Basket circulating. And our second speaker is Scott. Can you hear me okay? Actually, so my name is Scott, and I am a compulsive overeater. Hey, everyone. I'm grateful to be here. So I was asked to qualify, too, so I'm going to quickly do that. Um, I came to my first OA meeting on Friday, March 2nd, 2001. Um, but it is proof in that album I'm a compulsive eater, if you need that. So I was 28 years old. I was still living at home with my parents. Didn't have a college degree. Didn't have a driver's license. I had never gone on a date. I'd never kissed anyone. I'd never made love. I was never in a romantic relationship. Um, I just was thinking of something. Um, I had $25,000 in debt. Most of that was credit card debt because I had a hard time keeping the job and I had to feed my addiction somehow. Um, I also had a credit score in the low 200s and I was 315 pounds. My life consisted of food, TV, and suicidal ideations. That was my life. Um, so that's what I was like. What happened? Well, about four weeks before my first OA meeting in February 2001, I agreed to be a part of this group therapy outpatient thing. And while there, I developed a crush on a woman who was there for the same reasons as me. We became friends, and she just randomly, randomly one day asked me if I wanted to attend an Overeaters Anonymous meeting. And I said yes, not because I was eating out of my garbage can every night and not because I was racking up a lot of debt to feed my addiction. I said yes, so we can hang out. So we planned for this Friday evening meeting at St. Luke's Hospital in San Francisco. It's a meeting that no longer happens. By the way, I recently learned there was a 12th step within meeting, which is very apropos for my situation. And um, she and I had a falling out before we could get to that first meeting. So we decided probably not a good idea to attend that meeting. 
together. So that Friday night rolls around, and as usual, I have nothing planned. And something in me said, just check it out, it can't hurt. So I went to that meeting, and I never stopped coming back. That was over 15 years ago. I also binged after that meeting, by the way. And um, by the way, uh, this is something I've been sharing more about recently. Before her invite, she rarely attended OA meetings. Since the invite, she has rarely attended OA meetings. So I just lucked out somehow. And in retrospect, I see that now as my, you know, my first God moment. And um, so that's what I was like, uh, what happened, what I am like now before I get on to relapse and recovery. I'm almost 44. I've lived on my own for the last 14 years. I got a Class M driver's license and then a Class C driver's license. After 19 and a half years, I got my AA degree from City College of San Francisco. Two and a half years after that, I got my bachelor's from SF State. And then eight months after that, I started my master's in counseling. As I stand here now, I am over halfway done with my master's degree. I've gone on dates, I've kissed, I've made love, I've been in romantic relationships, gone through breakups as well. As of last October, for the first time in my adult life, I have zero credit card debt. And thank you. And as of February, my credit score is 809. Apparently, that's pretty high. Um, and I have lost between 120 and 130 pounds. And I think it's important for me to say that I've been at goal weight for about four years now. Um, <coughs> I have had 18 medical and psychiatric conditions completely healed just by overhauling my nutrition. That is a literal statement. No doctors, no therapists, no nutritionists, no exercise, no medication, no surgery, nothing but overhauling my nutrition. That means three things, but at the top of the list is looking at what I eat and what I drink, and that all stems from this fellowship. Um, and speaking of medications, I, I usually like to give people a heads up. Um, I made a very difficult decision about two and a half years ago. I decided to get off of my 20th and final psychotropic medication. That's 2-0, and I'm not kidding. And I've had a lot of gifts come from that. Unfortunately, you know, 27 months into this now, I still have a lot of withdrawal symptoms. And at the top of the list, a ton of physical pain 24-7. So if you see me over there kind of fidgeting and massaging myself, that's why. Uh, the pain does not stop until my body's done healing from that. All right. So I came in in that, you know, March 2001, and I got abstinent fairly quickly. Uh, I, my original abstinence date was March 26th, 2001. And in the first year, I lost 89 pounds. That was a big deal for me. But it also worked against me. You know, I looked at this mostly as a weight loss thing. And maybe after that, I make a friend or two. Nothing beyond that. So 
after that first year, because of the success I had with my weight loss, I decided that doing honest and thorough step work was unnecessary. I decided that speaking at meetings was unnecessary. I decided that sponsoring people was unnecessary because I was on the road to freedom. About a year and a half after that, I began to mess with my food. Um, just taking some risks here and there, playing around, testing things, because I was all healed anyway, right? Um, what happened was, I ended up being in relapse mode for seven years. Seven years. And um, for the first five and a half years, I told no one because of all the shame I felt. Um, you know, God willing, in about a week, I'll have six years of back-to-back -back abstinence since the end of that relapse. Um, let, let me tell you how I first uh, learned about what humility truly was. You know, before this happened, you know, I would look up the word in the dictionary and ask folks in program, and I just did not understand the definitions I would hear. Uh, so it was a Thursday night, this 8 p.m. meeting in San Francisco, about 20 other fellows in attendance, and I decided to share about being in relapse mode. This is about five and a half years into this. And I did that, and it was a humbling experience for me. Thanks. And uh, with that, it felt like this load came off my back. And I, you know, it kind of allowed me to just begin to move forward with, with, with that. Um, it's like I didn't have to lie anymore. I didn't have to pretend. I didn't have to mess around. And um, I didn't have to feel as much shame. Now, the shame didn't go away, but, you know, it, it certainly decreased. Um, it was also around that time, however, where I was beginning to lose some of the gifts that I had received from this fellowship. And the thing that sticks out the most is during my third semester, I believe, at SF State for my undergrad, I was eating a lot of flowery foods and foods filled with corn products. And these foods caused me to feel really fatigued. And it also increased my anxiety level. Now, I thought the solution was to quit school. I went in to see my counselor one morning and said, you know what, I don't think I'm college material. And she looks at her computer and says, you know, you made the dean's list last semester. I think you're college material. And that ended that discussion. But think about it. I was binging, and I thought the solution was to just quit school so I don't have to worry about getting up in time for class and, you know, I don't have to be anxious or less anxious. And that's my history. I eat, I sleep, I run away. That is my history. I quit things before any kind of success can happen. And there I was once again doing something that shows up over and over in all of my step work in some form or another. So we developed this education plan and, you know, I finished the semester, got my first C that semester, but I still passed and ended up getting my bachelor's about a year later. So it, it worked out. 
And it was around a year later, too, when I finally got abstinent for good. I have gotten a lot of gifts from relapse. Uh, namely, it, it got me to finally look at certain alcoholic ingredients in a way that I was never willing. You know, early on, you know, you hear a lot of people talking about abstaining from refined sugar. At the meetings I would attend, that's kind of all you heard. And it just sounded like, well, that's what people do in OA. But the problem was, during that seven years in relapse mode, I was not eating any refined sugar. I was binging on other foods that are very similar. The flour, the corn, the rice, the potatoes, all that stuff. And, um, you know, uh, that time in relapse really got me to look at that for good. And I did. And once that got straightened away, a lot of my food cravings went away. I didn't think that was possible. I didn't think it was possible to live a life with almost no food cravings. I certainly didn't think it was possible to live a life free of anxiety. I have zero anxiety today. Zero. And I'm someone who used to just wake up at 2 p.m. in terror, and maybe I can make it out the front door or not. Now I just, you know, i got to talk to my higher power to get out still, but I'm doing it. So, um... That's that. Once the food got clean, it allowed me to deal with the rest of life. You know, I think there's a reason why step one is where it is and not in the slot of step seven. For me, everything good, bad, and in between good and bad begins with my food. Um, so once that happened, I soon got the willingness to look at my higher power situation. I grew up... I was forced to go to church when I was a kid, and I hated it. So when I came into the fellowship, I brought in with me that punitive higher power that did me no good. And because of all the fear involved with that, fear I was taught, fear that I felt, fear that I saw in religious movies, I couldn't let go because something bad would happen to me and or my family members. But about a year, year and a half into this current abstinence, I got some courage around that. And I had to ask myself, what do I want in a higher power? And I'm not talking about a wife or a house and, you know, 20,000 bucks or whatever. I am talking about really basic things and not even including water and air. I want to feel healthy. I want to be happy. I want to be at peace. And I want to feel safe. That's it. Okay. Well, what do you need to do to feel happy, healthy, safe, and at peace? I need to abstain from my alcoholic ingredients that I honestly and thoroughly wrote about in every step one work I've ever done. I don't know any honest, sober alcoholic who drinks on Tuesdays and Saturdays only. They either drink or they don't drink. And, you know, when I was thinking about this, it's like, okay, well, God, I already have a lot of black and white thinking in my life. I hear all these people at meetings talking about concerns about restricting. I don't want that. You know, and then God says, well, you're looking for the perfect plan of eating, and perfection doesn't exist. But I could give you the next best thing. You live a black and white life around your food only? And I'll give you 80 million forms of gray in the rest of your life. 
How's that sound? We got a deal? Try it out. And I did. And I'm happy to say now that I mostly have a life that's free of black and white thinking. My food has to be perfect. Um, or else, you know, I'm not in college or living on my own. I'm not interested in making money and working. I'm thinking about killing myself all the time. And I'm sleeping 20 hours a day, which I once did for a long time. Um, so that concept of higher power really works for me. You know, when I am, when my food is clean, I am healthy, happy, safe, and at peace. And therefore, I am doing God's will for me. Um, that is very simple to me. But it took a long time to get there. And of course, it begins with my food being clean um, up front. Uh, one other thing is, and I'll wrap up here for my last few minutes, is having clean food allowed me to hit rock bottom around compulsive shopping. You know, I feel like we all have our kind of core addiction, and there's a, there are a few other ones in the periphery. Well, for me, debting and compulsive shopping was one of those. Once my food got clean, the shopping and spending went up, and then I had to look at that too. And then God comes in and is okay, I made you black and white around this now. And... Um, you know, that's just kind of how this works for me. You know, I give up one thing, other things um, show up. Even within the context of food, you know, I gave up refined sugar in March of 2001. But then I just drank two and a half gallons of diet soda per day, right? So the, the madness never ends, and that's why I attend a lot of meetings. You know, I'm about a week away from completing my first 365 and 365. And um, that's been about 400 meetings in the last 12 months, and I'm always in a lot of physical pain. I'm a full-time graduate student. I work four days a week. I'm very busy, and I hurt all the time. But it was doable. And um, I'm also a professional isolator. So if anything, being around you all fine folks and all that good stuff, maybe facing some fears that one of you may come up to me and say hello, that's worth it. That's a good trade-off for the pain it is to get around and drive and all that stuff. And um, well, I hope that was helpful. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much, Scott. That's a good question. Where is the basket? Um, let's keep it moving. It's in the back row. I think it was heading forward, wasn't it? Yes. Have that. Could it had? Could it go this way forward? I think this is the group that hasn't had it. And I'm going to come around and take some of the questions out and continue to circulate it, so we're ready to ask the questions after our next speaker. Again, thank you so much, Scott. And our third speaker is Susan. Her name's also Susan. Thank you, Susan. Good afternoon. My name is Susan. I'm a compulsive overeater. Thank you, Scott and Ella. I really appreciate um, all that you shared. Uh, this is just my story. Um, I only speak for myself, as much as I'd really like to speak for OA and tell you all how to make this all work. Uh, that wouldn't be very good for me. Um, <clears throat> so I attended my first OA meeting on August 2nd, 1966, in Los Angeles. 
And I was four weeks shy of my 18th birthday, just graduated from high school. And I didn't come to OA because I wanted to stop eating compulsively. And I pretty much ignored the traditions, or I might have heard the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively, and I didn't really have that. So <laughs> I'm really glad I missed that part back then. Um, and, and yet, that's the same tradition that kept me coming back through 10 years of, of relapse. So uh, I started my abstinence October 12th of 1976. So yes, that was 10 years. When I came in, um, OA was really different and very much the same. There were two kinds of meetings in Los Angeles. There were gray sheet meetings and there were moderate meal or meetings or whatever they called the other ones. Um, my first meeting I was handled, ha handed a gray sheet. It's one of the food plans I believe that's in Dignity of Choice. And so, you know, to me that was a diet. And I heard someone say last night about every time they've ever been on a diet they gained weight. Well, that's my, been my experience as well. Diets, the word, and it's really just an attitude thing. I, I, I get that today, but I didn't then. But the word diet, to me, equals deprivation. And I was also young, so I was also still in that rebellious state, like, don't tell me what to do. Um, and so what I tried for 10 years was to follow that food plan. And it was very convenient in some ways, because if I wanted to stop following the food plan, I could do something like add an extra tablespoon of string beans on top of the cup, and I have plenty of people that would tell me that I broke my abstinence. And so if I was going to break my abstinence, or if I'd already broken my abstinence on string beans, I might as well go for the stuff I really wanted. Um, and so I did that a lot. I did that a lot. Um, just quickly, you know, I was young when I came in, I got married, I had two children and got divorced between... 1966 and 1976. And so um, in 1976, at, a at the point where I separated from my husband, I was, uh, you know, at a normal body weight. And within six months, I had put on a huge, tremendous amount of weight. I don't remember all the numbers anymore. But um, I, I remember at that time thinking that OA didn't work. And I was going to AA meetings standing around the food table talking with other OA rejects and we were all talking about how OA didn't work while we were shoving food in our mouths um, and for some reason this one Tuesday night I was already separated from my husband divorced with two young kids I was heading to my AA meeting and I ended up at an OA meeting and I'll, I'll never forget that night um, it was a very powerful time for me. It was, it was 19, early 1976, I believe. The woman, there was a beginner's meeting before the regular meeting, and so I got there during the speaker of the, of the newcomer's meeting, and she was standing at the front of the room. She was someone I used to stand around the food table with at the AA meetings, and there she was leading this meeting. She was talking about how she was um, using the analogy of compulsive eating or, or the compulsion as a little man standing on your shoulder pointing a gun to your head saying, if you don't eat the fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is for you, I'm going to shoot. And that's what it felt like to me, and I'd never heard anyone describe it in that way before, and it just really resonated with me. And I remember standing in the back of the room with tears streaming down my face. Um, and I remember, it was just so interesting, that night feeling totally hopeless, 
I felt really hopeless, but what I really was experiencing was hope. I didn't recognize it. But by recognizing, you know, by that analogy, you know, it, it actually gave me a feeling of hope, and I just didn't see it at the time. Um, and I started abstaining as best as I could, uh, and I've done all kinds of food plans. Um, and at some point, I don't remember, at some point, it was October 11th, <laughs> Uh, I was abstaining, and 8 o'clock at night, after my dinner was long over, I went and had three cookies. And I remember calling a close friend of mine, and I said, I broke my abstinence again. And I was feeling so devastated, and she said to me, aren't you sick and tired of starting over? And that was the beginning of my abstinence. And for me, I was kind of almost like addicted to failure. I was addicted to failing. And it was made easy for me. You know, it was easy for me to fail. I knew how to do that. Uh, and I realized, um, and I made a decision that night that I wasn't ever going to start over again. That was it. This was it. I'm not starting over again. And I always like to clarify that doesn't mean that I give myself permission to binge or do any of those things. That's not what it means. It just, what it meant to me was I don't have to be perfect. And um, over the course of the years, I've come to see how, for me, compulsive overeating and perfection are like Siamese twins. And they go together. And when I'm trying to be perfect, I'm being a compulsive overeater at the same time. And so some of I'm going to just share some of what helped, uh, helped me. One of the things um, was recognizing the perfection in me and how that was killing me, because it really was. And if I had not recognized that, I don't think I'd be standing here today. I don't think I would have come back for as long as I've come back. Um, the other thing that helped me was, uh, and this came a little later, was finding a distinction between abstinence and food plan. And at the time, <coughs> excuse me, at the time, abstinence was a tool. It was not food plan that was a tool. So, there, you know, it, it was really... Uh, for me, it was all enmeshed, and I still can remember reading an article in the Lifeline that Roseanne wrote about the distinction between abstinence and food plan, and it just made such sense to me. And so for me, abstinence is, is equivalent to sobriety. And sobriety is more than not drinking if you're an alcoholic. Sobriety is how you live your life. I mean, you can not be, drink and be dry and not be very pleasant to be around. But if you're sober then you are living a life of, for me, is honesty and integrity and service and all of those things. And that's what abstinence means to me. It's more than the food I put in my mouth. That's a part of it, but it's really a bigger global thing. It's about how I treat other people. It's about how I treat myself. It's about being honest. It's about integrity and being of service. My food plan is whatever the food plan is for you. I mean, everybody has their own, their own food plan, and mine has changed uh, many times over the years. But what I realized is if I deviate from my food plan, that doesn't necessarily mean I've broken my abstinence. And that has worked for me. doesn't work for everybody. I get that, and I'm perfectly fine with anybody doing whatever it is that works for them. Um, I've worked as a sponsor a number of times with people that are trying to come out of relapse. And one of the things that I've realized for myself is that I, can't, I couldn't go back to where I was when I came in. 
I couldn't go back to where I was when I was last abstaining. I couldn't go back, period. That if I was going to have any success, I was going to have to start with where I was today. And I'm in a different place today than I was then. So that's been really important. Um, the other thing that's been really important is realizing I could not build my program on failure. And as long as I kept looking and pointing at all the things I was doing wrong and how I was bad and how I made a mistake, well, I, I was never that mild on myself, how I really totally screwed up, and I wasn't that polite either, um, that I couldn't, I wasn't going to be able to keep going. So what I had to ask myself was, in order to start coming out of relapse, was what can I do today? What's not the most I can do? What's the least I can do? What's the minimum I can do today so that when I put my head down on the pillow tonight, I will feel like I had a day of abstinence? And if I could do that, then when I woke up in the morning, it was like a revelation. Wow, I abstained yesterday. Can I do that again today? Well, yeah, I did it yesterday. I can do that again today. And, you know, eventually the road gets narrower. I've seen that happen with me and with other people in terms of what I eat, how much I eat, when I eat, and all of those things. But building on success instead of building on failures made a huge difference. So if you're struggling with relapse right now, I invite you to think of that, is if that will work for you. You know, what's the least I can do today? So when I put my head down on the pillow tonight, I will feel like I had a day of abstinence. I mean, and there's lots of other things that, you know, that I need to use and do. Um, but it was where I started. And um, so over the course of these years, give me a minute here. I, I need some guidance from my higher power because my mind just decided to go blank. <laughs> um I think I mentioned earlier, my food plans changed a lot, and it, and it continually changes. I'm not the person I was when I came in. I'm, you know, I'm not 18 anymore, in case you hadn't noticed. And I'm not 28, which is how old I was when I started this abstinence. I'm 67. And um, my body's not the same as it was when I was those ages. My abilities are not the same. My memory's sure not the same. Um, <laughs> But, there, but what's, what, I mean, nothing's the same. And isn't that the whole idea, is that nothing is the same? If I, if I was all the same as I was then, what growth would there be? So, you know, when I think about who I was then and who I am now, I wouldn't go back. I wouldn't want to have to go through that again. And yet, I know those 10 years were there for a purpose. And I know because I've shared on relapse and recovery from relapse in lots of different places, that it is something that many of us have to go through on our road to recovery. And that, for me, is part of the humility, is not seeing it as um, me being bad or weak, but seeing it as part of my path. And so for me, it was just clearly part of my path. And there are many people who come in, get abstinence the first day, and never lose it, and that's their path. Uh, I think there's more like me. <laughs> <laughs> That's been my experience, but maybe it's just because of who I hang out with. I'm not sure. But um, <laughs> I think that for many of us, it is a part of our recovery. And when I see the relapse as a part of my recovery, as opposed to something to beat myself up over, it makes a huge difference. So for, you know, for these last um, 40 years, 
so much has changed. Um, my kids are in their 40s. I don't know how that's possible. And with my older son in particular, every time he has a birthday, whatever the next year it is, it's like, wait a minute, how could I have a son that age? Isn't that just how old I am? Um, I was 20 when he was born, so I'm 20 years older than he is. Um, and, uh, you know, I, they don't live nearby. They haven't for a long time. Now they're both on the southeast coast, and I'm remarried. And I have been for almost 36 years to my husband who is not a compulsive overeater, um, who doesn't really get it, but supports what I do and who I am and what, you know. He still doesn't get it. He still complains when we go out to dinner that he can't have dessert because I won't, not because, no, he doesn't say because I won't share with him because there's no one to share with. And um, sometimes it makes me wonder if he isn't really a little bit compulsive because I'll say to him, well, why don't you just, you know, get what you want and eat as much of it as you want. And he said, oh, no, I'll eat the whole thing, <laughs> which he doesn't. But anyway, that's a whole other story. So, you know, it's, um, and the, the, I think that I want to just talk a little bit about service because I, I don't like the expression service is slimming. I never have. Um, service is service, and service keeps coming back, keeps me coming back. And so I love that, that meetings always have some service positions where there are no abstinence requirements. And I totally get that there are some positions where having an abstinence requirement is appropriate. But I think it's essential for meetings to have positions where there are no abstinence requirements. And so for someone like me who's been in relapse, you know, to be able to have a service position, whether it's, you know, picking up the coffee cups after the meeting, um, be the, being the opener, the closer, the greeter, you know, whatever it is, it keeps me coming back. Because the only reason I'm here today is that, because I've kept coming back. And that's the secret, in case no one's told. Well, the secret's actually the 12 steps, and it says that in our 12 and 12. Um, but the secret for me before that one is to keep coming back. Because if I don't keep coming back, I'm not going to be working the steps. If I don't keep coming back, I'm not going to be evolving and changing and growing in the way that my higher power intends for me to. And it does, you know, so whether you're abstaining today or not, and I like what was said in an earlier meeting, um, if you're sitting in this meeting right now and you're not eating, you are abstaining. So the question isn't how do you abstain, but how do you keep your abstinence? So you have it all. It's all been given you as a gift and you have it right now, the gift of abstinence. So the question is, how do you keep it for five more minutes? How do you keep it for another hour? And whatever, you know, I remember hearing in the early days, you do whatever it takes. And I, you know, whether that means, you know, going to bed at eight o'clock at night so you don't eat before breakfast. And that's what that, that's what it means to keep your abstinence. And um, the road gets narrower and it gets easier in so many ways. But I like thinking of this as a road. It's a road for me that's been very windy. And what that means is when I'm on one of those, you know, getting coming up to one of those curves where maybe there's a U-turn, I can't see what's around the corner. I have to trust God. It's also for me, I have lots of different images, a road that goes up, like up a mountain. And each time I come around to the other side, it's an inverted one. It's narrower at the top. No, it's wider at the top. 
because it takes longer to come back around each time. But each time I come back around to the same space I was and I look at whatever the view is, it's different because I am looking from a different perspective. So if I don't keep coming back to meetings, I'm not going to have that experience. And the other, you know, by coming back, you offer hope to whoever is sitting in the room with you. You may not know it, but just by sitting in the room and being present, you're offering hope to people. And that's the other key for me. It happens to also be my middle name, which I hated when I was a kid, but I love now that it's my middle name. So um, no matter what else you do, don't leave before the miracle happens. Thank you. Abundance, um, meaning abundance of questions and limited time. So we have at least 15 questions, uh, maybe 16 and, you know, just 20 minutes. So I'm going to take some liberty to combine a couple of questions, and we might not get to all of them. I apologize in advance if your question isn't um, addressed. Please find the speakers afterwards if your question doesn't get addressed, okay? Um, so once again, let's thank our speakers for sharing their experience, strength, and hope. Okay, and most of these are addressed to no one in particular, so um, just if you feel inspired, please address. Um, coming back in after relapse, what were your top two, two, two top tools of recovery? Scott. Well, so let me make it clear, I never left. That was one of the things I did right, I think, is I never stopped coming back. Too loud? Thanks. Um, so I don't have a top two, but I have a, a, a number one, and that's going to meetings. Not just because I'm a professional isolator, but I need to hear and see recovery. You know, over the years, I learned that HOPE, H-O-P-E, that Susan just said, to me, that's an acronym for hearing other people's experiences. And that's what I get at meetings. In the step work, I see the problem. At meetings, I see and hear the solutions, plural. And in my first two years of this current abstinence, I attended over a thousand meetings. I really, really wanted it this time. So that'd be the one tool I would say. Thanks. Anybody else want to comment on that? Okay. So this question says, I feel. Speak in the mic. Sure. I feel shame making outreach calls and saying I'm not following the program, like weighing and measuring. I feel uneasy and awkward asking for help and telling others that I'm in relapse. How can I overcome my resistance to humbling myself and feeling worthless? Interesting. We were just talking about shame at lunch today. Um, I don't know if I have a good answer to this question. Uh, I think sometimes you just have to do it. Like, even if it's not necessarily, I mean, whatever's easier. Anonymously at a big meeting where you don't know a lot of people or one-to-one -one with someone that you trust to just tell the truth. If you start telling the truth to one person, 
then you start telling the truth about something else and then about something else. That will help, I believe, eliminate, not eliminate, but reduce the shame. And I mean, I can tell you there's nothing to be ashamed of, but that's not going to help. I mean, I know that this is just part of the disease and it's not about shame, but this is a very shame-based disease. So saying that's not going to help. It's about trusting somebody and finding out you're not alone because whoever you are, you're not alone. And the question you asked is felt or has been felt by almost everybody in this room. Anyone, do you also want to address that one? No, I, I think that's an important one if you have something to say. Well, I, I've asked the speakers to look through the questions and find ones that they really resonate with. So um, I think Ella said, okay, please. Well, hi. Um, just to piggyback a little bit about that whole thing, you know, it's like I have to. Um, identify what's my disease talking and to, and this whole thing about I'm ashamed or I can't ask for help you know that's more ways that the disease wants to just keep us down and I just have to say we're not going there and um, one of the things that was really important to me early on was the fellowship and developing connections with people and making the calls and making the calls even when I didn't need to make them so that puts a practice on it. Um, and again, you know, it says we're powerless over food. It says it's not a moral issue. So shame is something I've added to the equation. And, uh, you know, I, I guess it's to pray to have it relieved or, as was said, to do it anyway. And here's this thing about working the steps while in relapse. Um, you know, I definitely work the steps. I don't know that working them, you know, some people say, well, if you work the steps, you'll get abstinent. I don't know. But they certainly can't hurt. And there's no reason not to. I mean, I know that there's some people who say, well, you're, you're on step one. You haven't completed step one. And um, it doesn't matter because you can read and write on step one, you know, from here to eternity. And that still doesn't mean the same thing as getting that profound sense that I can't overeat. But certainly, um, for me, working on the steps, you know, I remember once when I was still eating and I called someone and said, well, can I write a four-step? And she said, well, it can't hurt. So um, that's just been my experience. Scott, do you have a I uh, looked at this because it was addressed to me specifically, so it's all about me, right? <laughs> so this one says, Scott, what events or circumstances contributed to your isolation and compulsive food behaviors in your early adulthood? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually. So whoever asked this, thank you, because I have a very different answer now than before now. So, you know, I was someone, unfortunately, who was abused a lot as a kid. And I was also a, a bully victim in a horrific way for a long time. And I used to tell people that I ate because of the abuse and the bullying. Um, but the fact of the matter is, and this too shows up in my step work, I also binged all the time when I was happy. When my favorite sports teams were doing well after high school graduation. And today, I look at this very differently. I didn't eat 
because of my feelings or, or my past, um, you know, just negative people, negative experiences, I, I uh, fed my cravings because, you know, the cravings are cravings. I use my past as an excuse to feed my cravings. That's how I look at it now, and those are very different things. And I think the key piece is the, the truth, the fact that I, that I also ate in good times, too. So um, that is my answer to that. The isolation part, you know, when you um, are overweight, you are a very easy target to be made fun of. And who wants to go out when you can be made fun of and be invisible at the same time, by the way? You get both sides of it, you know, and I think that added a lot to why I've become a professional isolator. Thanks. lost track of whose turn it was. Okay. Um, how do you cope with your spouse, partner, roommates, close family eating your trigger foods or having them in your home or personal office space every day? Well, this, this isn't a problem for me anymore, and it may be because I've been abstaining for such a long time, but um, my husband keeps food in the house that I don't eat, a lot of it. And I just, you know... It, I, Somebody also asked me what my food plan was. Part of my food plan is I don't eat sugar and, uh, and I don't eat gluten and other things that, you know. But it's like, well, it's not my food. It's just not my food. So, and, you know, the whole thing, we were asked not to mention specific foods. And the whole thing for me is, I have, there's two ideas I have around that. One is specific foods are everywhere. They're on TV, they're on the radio, on billboards, they're everywhere. So I'm not going to be able to avoid them. And I'd frankly, I'd rather hear the name of a food than a very sensual description of it, which is often what I hear at meetings where we can't mention specific foods. On the other side of that, I get that because food is everywhere, when we come in here, we want to feel safe and not have to deal with it. So I see both sides of it. But, you know, that food that's in the office, the food that's, you know, a lot of times for me, it's all about wanting to fit in. And I think that if I eat what you eat, not you, you, but the other yous out there, then I'm going to fit in. But that's actually the, a, a lie. The truth is, if I follow my food plan, if I abstain, I'm going to fit in where I'm supposed to fit in because I'm being authentic. I'm being myself. So there was a time when my kids were still home and young and I couldn't have a lot of those foods in the house and I said we're not having X, Y, and Z in the house and if you want to get it, go over to the store and get a single serving and come back when you're done. And that was fine. I did that when I needed to and then today, not an issue for me. So do what you, what you can and what you need to to take care of yourself and stay close to your higher power because that's really where the strength comes from. <clears throat> These are complicated questions, folks. Um, okay, here's one which I think is good. It says, what about being abstinent and not reaching a healthy body weight? Well, I think that's probably one then for a medical person to deal with. And, and what are we defining as abstinent? I mean, it is complicated because I know there's people who have not eaten certain foods and have only eaten three meals a day and have still gained 100 pounds. 
it's not impossible, folks, and you know that, and I know that, because we are crafty. And, um, and, our, and our amount indicators are rather, um, yes. Um, so I think, you know, I really do think that then that, you know, and I know it's difficult to consult outside help in their terms because, you know, there are people, I remember someone said to this person, well, if you're hungry, just have, oh, God, here we go, we're just going to be mean. If you're hungry, just have seven almonds. And I thought, is that, a, is, is that a measure? I mean, are they actually serious? I mean, I mean what, what, what person would do that? And, um, and I think here is a very thing that's interesting because it said um, it, maybe there's no food that triggers relapse, but eating in itself, you know, triggers eating. And um, I know that's true for me, that if I overeat, my thought is, like if I get too full, my thought is I need to eat more. And I think that's unique to compulsive overeaters, that I don't, that fullness actually triggers the desire to eat more. It doesn't, um, so, well, so that sometimes um, really eating a little less than I want is easier. But, um, you know, all this stuff, is is not that difficult to come up with. And I think that if we're really honest and reasonable about what a reasonable amount of food is, and that if I'm eating healthy foods and I mean it was my it was my experience because I always thought it's unfair and that if I don't eat five hundred calories a day I won't lose weight. But the point is when I eat five hundred calories a day that was an excuse to eat 2,500 calories at the next breakfast. And so no wonder I couldn't lose weight. And I was always trying, you know, to be in a big hurry about it. And I remember numbers of people started to say to me, well, what did you do? What happened? How did you do this? And I just said, well, I stopped overeating. And for me, that's been my experience. I know that may not all be everybody's experience and that they will have to seek some um, outside help. So thanks. All right, so this one says, how can I avoid the slippery slope on food that leads to relapse? Uh, I hope this answers the question. I, I had to identify my triggering foods first. You know, I mentioned up front in my share that I abstained from refined sugar off the bat, but that was not my only alcoholic you know, ingredient. There were other ones that I just didn't really look at. Um, you know, and around, you know, when I was willing to look at that stuff at the end of seven years in relapse mode, you know, if I went through all of my first step work, if I went through all of my food history writings and some of my 10 steps too, there is not a single thing in those about kale and green beans and, and Brussels sprouts and absolutely nothing. And the reason why there's nothing in there about kale, green beans and Brussels sprouts is because I've never had a desire to binge on kale, broccoli and cauliflower and those foods. Um, but I want to acknowledge some people do and I know some of those people. I was not one of those people. But there is a lot of stuff that shows up, sugar, flour, corn, dairy, caffeinated stuff, artificial sweeteners, 
And those are the things that I have truthfully identified as my alcoholic ingredients. And I really needed to look at that stuff. And guess what? When I did, I was willing to abstain. And when I was willing to abstain, for the first time in my life, I wasn't ruled by food cravings. And um, easier said than done, though. But uh, definitely possible. Thanks. So this is a statement and not a question, so I'm going to read it, uh, and then I'll respond. Dropping sponsees if can't maintain abstinence or being honest about it. I think the question is, should one, I'm guessing the question is, should one drop a sponsee? And um, I'll tell you my experience, and this goes back to shame again. Um, when I was newer and going in L.A., we had to raise our hand for our first 30 days of abstinence, not first 30 days in the program. So if you were a relapser, it's like, oh, God, I have to do this again. Well, so when I broke my abstinence the last time and I went to a meeting and they asked, and I had been serving on the intergroup board at the time and I was pretty active, and I raised my hand and I had people literally turn their backs on me. Thankfully, I'd been around long enough and had enough, my self-esteem had grown just enough to know that was their problem. It's not that it didn't hurt, but I knew I had a place in OA because I had a desire to stop eating compulsively, and the tradition said that was the only requirement. You don't have to like me. You don't have to be nice to me. <laughs> um, but, you know, th there have been times when I've had to let a sponsee go, but it isn't ever because of that. Because, you know, the reason... You know, sometimes it's just not working for us. Sometimes, I mean, I've been let go as a sponsor, too. It's not personal. When you let someone go because they're not abstaining, that to me feels personal. And um, I don't ever want to experience that, and I don't ever want to make anyone else experience that. Do you have, do you have a burning desire? Well, I was just going like to say that to me, um, it's all about being honest. And that um, I feel if anybody is willing to be honest and is willing to try and keep on doing the tools, then I'm willing to support them. Um, so no matter what the result is. Thank you. Once again, apologies to those of you whose answer, questions we didn't get to. And hopefully you can find the speakers or talk with someone else about the questions. It's now time to close the session, and um, we're actually going to stand and join hands and end with, um, I put my hand in yours. Let's see if we can make a big circle. Yeah.
Yeah. They ignored the 